podcast, The History of Fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, The History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. And it's Thursday today, and our regular dress listeners will know that that means it's our weekly fashion history mystery where we answer listener questions. And today's question was, Cass, actually a pretty popular one because more than one of you have written to us about this topic. Yeah, and just like those of you who have posed this query, we are also huge fans of the Amazon original TV show, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yeah, you can count me in as a ginormous fan. And that is because the whole thing is just so well done from the script to the actors. And I want to give a big shout out to this being largely a female-driven cast and also to the costumes, which are more or less what we're going to talk about on today's episode. But I'm afraid that I'm a tad late to a party, a fabulous 1950s party cast. <laughs> and why is that? Do tell. Well, it, the summer, as you know, has been very busy. We've had a lot of things going on, presentations and other things that we're writing. And so I hadn't yet had the chance to visit um, until this week an exhibition that's at the Paley Center for Media here in New York City. And they have on display many of the costumes and sets from Mrs. Maisel. And I have to say, it was a super fun peep into the making of the show. And, you know, this is way more your world than mine in terms of the inner workings of film and TV, because this is actually your vocation. You know, you've worked on costuming so many productions cast that our listeners probably have no idea that they were huge fans of. Um, One notable one being Breaking Bad. But do you want to talk a little bit about this and talk about some of the other productions that you've worked on? Sure, I would love to. I've actually been a costumer in various capacities for the past 10 years. And I've had the opportunity, which I love to really hone my craft in a variety of different jobs. So from being an onset costumer to sewing, to aging and dyeing, and then I usually costume supervise the department, but most recently I designed. So One of my very first TV shows was Breaking Bad, as you mentioned, but I've also worked on shows that ranged from Adam Sandler's comedic Western, The Ridiculous Six, to the much more serious Sicario. And most recently this summer, I designed a film called The Silk Road, but it's not what our listeners might think. It's actually a true story based on an online drug marketplace by the same name. (laughs) Yeah. I think I mentioned this to like one of our fellow fashion historian friends. They're like, what's Cass up to? And I was like, oh, she's working on this film called The Silk Road. And they thought that, of course, it was like Bacara, like, you know, many centuries ago. But it's not. It's <laughs> Alas, about the dark web. not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I would really argue that this entire genre of costume design I mean, to me, has kind of shifted over the last 20 years in our favor as fashion historians because I think that many audience members have become much more savvy and kind of understand the point of the accuracy and the detail that goes into historic dramas. Like a few of my favorite ones of the last, you know, 10, 20 years were the Borgias. 
and the tutors. And to me, just as somebody who watches, you know, subscription TV, I thought that these two productions in particular felt like really huge turning points in terms of how historic dress was accurately presented on television. But but this is what you do all the time. So I think that you probably have your own thoughts on this. <laughs> yeah. And absolutely, I think probably in terms of of historic dress, how it's has presented accurately on TV is probably a product of the last 20 years or so because of the this huge new emphasis on television as, you know, kind of what we're all watching now. But Historical accuracy has been around for many, many decades, and it really just depends on the costume designer, right? Someone like John Bright, who was a guest on the podcast earlier this season, was arguably and is arguably a fashion historian. He's a a collector of fashion for many, many years. And so he's really been conscious of historical accuracy since he began designing films in the 80s. So some of my favorite period films are something like Barry Lyndon. Which I still have not seen. Oh, Yes. It was on Amazon for about 24 hours and I watched it <laughs> and it was gone. <laughs> um, but it's an incredibly beautiful film. And it was by uh, one, the costume designer, Melina Cananero, won an Academy Award for those designs. And she might be more familiar to our listeners as the Oscar award winning designer of Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette. So, you know, costume design is really an art form that designers have been cultivating, well, Actually, I guess for centuries now, if you think of it on the, in terms of on the stage, but now they're doing it for the small and the big screen in really cool and exciting ways. And it's, it's a whole kind of history unto its own in terms of like these shifting trends for things being like super duper accurate or right. as like maybe you can look back at some of the, the, there was a Marie Antoinette film that was produced in the 1950s. I'm not, I don't remember the year exactly. And the costuming in that film, well, as beautiful and exquisite as it is and very seductive as it is, it didn't have the same focus on historical accuracy. And a lot of times when Uh, In the past, when historic dramas have been produced, um, the costume designers are actually trying, attempting to walk this fine line of making the styles of dress palatable to people looking at it at that time in terms of what contemporary fashion looks like, but also putting in all those historical references. So it's just been really interesting to see how that has kind of shifted in the last 20 years. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so we've gotten off topic a little bit. (laughs) Let's get back to our subject at hand, which is Mrs. Maisel. And for any of our listeners who might not already be familiar with the show, it's set in the late 1950s. I think in the initial scene, it starts in 1958. And the main character, Midge Maisel, who is played stupendously by Rachel Brosnahan, she's an extremely witty young wife and mother who grew up in an upper-middle-class Jewish family on the Upper West Side. And when the show opens, her life is kind of like this seemingly perfect 1950s dream. She's a housewife with a handsome, seemingly well-to-do husband. She has two young children, a beautiful apartment, and frankly, it's ginormous in terms of New York standards. I know. (laughs) She also has this extraordinary wardrobe to match all of these, you know, quote unquote, successes that she's accomplished at this point in her life. 
Yes, Midge is extremely well put together, prim, but not exactly proper. She's very outspoken with a sparkling intellect. Conflicts get introduced in the show early on when her husband, Joel, leaves her for his secretary. And in a fit of indignation and more than a few glasses of wine, she stumbles into this comedy club that she had frequented with Joel, who dreamed of being a stand-up comic. So taking over the mic, she unleashes a biting diatribe on the state of her marriage and the pressures put on women to conform to unrealistic ideals. And in that moment, a star was born. It certainly was. And there's a lot more hilarity that ensues with Midge um, because she starts to pursue a career as a stand-up comedian, all the while attempting to hide it from her friends and family. So you can imagine how that all (laughs) works out. But she's basically living two different lives. And one of the main ways that this is communicated to viewers is through her wardrobe, which is really, really interesting because, um, you know, oftentimes it, her wardrobe feels to be in direct conflict with her comedic riffs, which are, you know, pretty brash. They're raw. And on more than one occasion, they warranted her arrest on charges of obscenity. (laughs) So she's presenting herself as this dainty lady wearing a hat, wearing perfect gloves and designer dress. But, you know, Cass, the stuff that's coming out of her mouth is in direct opposition to that. And that's, I think, that one of the things that makes this amazing tension and it makes her character really so interesting and compelling. And part of that tension comes to us courtesy of Emmy Award-winning costume designer Donna Zakowska. For her, the clothes are yet another character in the show. And while the extras on the show, of which there are many, wear vintage clothes from the period, as well as I'm sure things that are rented from rental houses, Zakowska and her team of 25 people create original ensembles for all the lead actors on the show. Yeah, and Cass, one thing that struck me immediately when I first saw the show is the way in which Zakowska uses color. And I've read many, many interviews with uh, journalists that she's done about creating the costumes. And she this comes up again and again and again for her, this, this matter of color. And she has said, quote, there's an emotional response that is inherent in color. Um, you know, for, for instance, some of the initial scenes of the show, Sakowska dressed the character of Midge in pink. And it was kind of symbolic of this rosy nature that she believed her life to be, that her marriage to be. But after everything falls apart, the color pink almost instantaneously disappears from her wardrobe for a while. But it would reappear a little bit later um, as the series goes on, as Midge begins to establish her own identity separate from that of her now estranged husband. Yeah, and color is a very common and important storytelling tool used by costume designers to really visually manifest, you know, these underlying narratives in any given setting, as is, of course, the clothing itself. So, you know, the semiotic capabilities of clothing and costume, have you, is essential to the creation of these characters. And the show's creator, Amy Sherman Palladino, has called Zakowska a quote-unquote mad scientist and remarked, she doesn't believe a hat is a hat. You know, a hat is a character. It's a person. The hat needs to reflect where the person is internally. Exactly. And speaking of hats, uh, these are not just any old hats. Sikowska and her team put a ton of effort into researching period sources that include French Vogue, as well as a lot of fashion photography of the era, including uh, works by Irving Penn and Norman Parkinson, who we have already 
you know, discussed briefly, or you have discussed briefly on a prior episode on season one about the history of fashion photography. But frequently the clothes that appear in Mrs. Maisel are adaptations of haute couture designs which is very interesting. Um, And they might have been adaptations of designs that are originally by Dior or Balenciaga. And if anyone wants to go back and listen to our also recent episode about the history of haute couture industry, um, you will know that these adaptations were readily available on the American market um, vis-a-vis high-end department stores such as Bergdorf Goodman or B. Altman, which is also interesting about the show because B. Altman was like this now defunct gem of a department store. Um, it doesn't exist anymore, but it was recreated for the show. And actually at one point, Midge works there briefly at the makeup counter. And that makeup counter is actually part of the exhibition at the Paley Center, right, April? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and it's stocked full of uh, Elizabeth Arden cosmetic products. And the makeup counter set piece is just one of a few pieces uh, of sets that are on view. There's also the beauty salon from the upstate summer resort Steiner that all the characters visit in season two. There's the telephone switchboard where Midge worked for some time and even her armoire filled with rows and rows and rows of shoes. And when I was there, I was like, her feet are tiny. (laughs) What? How, how, How small is she? And, and, also, like, I just have to say about the costumes in general as well that are on display, she must be really small because some of the, the waists of the dresses that are on display are like two hand spans. Yeah, and fun fact, April, I don't know if you know this, but I actually had the pleasure of working with Rachel on another period TV show that was filmed in New Mexico um, some years back at this point, but it was called Manhattan. Ah. Not that she would remember me. I was only on set a few days to help age and die, but it's still cool to make that connection. I think that you have to explain the age and die thing because it might come across in a different way. Oh, aging and dying is a department in the costume department um, that it's a highly specialized skill that you kind of learn to do. But it's to, you know, you get clothes new and you have to make them look old or worn. Of course, that's the aging aspect. My husband's currently working on a zombie film. So the aging and dying department's incredibly important in making (laughs) all of these zombie costumes. Or shredding department. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And dying is this highly specialized skill that is, you know, can you match this perfect pink or can you dye it to this shade or that shade? So there's a lot of things that go into making a costume ready before it actually goes to camera. So agent dying is one of those things. Yeah. But as a costumer, I know that there's, you know, a lot of this work that goes unseen to the audience to create the precise look of any given era. So for instance, those tiny waists that you're talking about were sculpted with foundation garments that Zakowska has said were integral to creating the look as they, of course, would have been in the 1950s. So in addition to dressing the leads and extras alike in corsets, she says, we worked with Playtex and they had a certain bra they created for us that we used. And so you do, to a degree, have to sort of pull women in, you know, bring the bust up. There's no way around it. Otherwise, we could not get people into those dresses. And this is also something similar um, that we take into consideration as fashion historians when we dress mannequins for a museum exhibition. Because if you don't have the effect of the particular undergarments of an era, whether they're actual period authentic 
undergarments from that time period or if they're recreations, oftentimes the way that the mannequin looks, the way it's dressed, doesn't look quite right. Oh, absolutely. And we all have horror stories about going to yeah. an exhibit or a presentation of things and seeing something that was not properly supported. So going back to what you mentioned, the Borgias and the Tudors, April, the very specific types of undergarments and corsets used on these shows are one of the main ways that the very specific authentic look can come across. All of this is hidden labor on the part of the costume designers and their team. Yeah. And so I just want to give a shout out to all that hidden labor. We adore and appreciate your work. If you would like to check out the Paley Center exhibition to appreciate the sets and the costumes in person, I'm afraid it's coming to a quick close on September 7th. That's just only a few days from this episode will air. I'm I'm really sorry, guys. I wish I had gotten there sooner. But, you know, Cass, sometimes pesky things like life tend to get in the way. <laughs> and also, if you haven't already checked out The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, it's an Amazon original and you can stream it online now. And we didn't mention this earlier, April, but the show has already garnered 19 Emmy nominations and two Golden Globes, including Best Actress wins for Rachel Brosnahan at the Emmys and the Golden Globes. Yeah, it's a fantastic show, so check it out. And I think that Brosnahan herself has summed it up quite well when she said, quote, the show is equal parts fantasy and reality. It has beautiful clothes, beautiful sets. I think in some ways it's aspirational too. It's about a woman who's reinventing herself after completing the dream she laid out for herself. Everything falls apart. She finds herself anew. It's never too late to do that. It's funny, and I think filled with joy at its core, and that's something that we need a lot more of in the world right now. Agreed. And who does not need more joy? I think that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider incorporating a little 50s flair into your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Please join us for our full-length episode this coming Tuesday. If you'd like to write to us with a question for a future fashion history mystery minisode, you can do it dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. And of course, you can follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. Last but not least, thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. Catch you soon. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.